So welcome to today's Ideas Forum. And thank you to the Whitaker Institute for inviting us to participate and to Courtney for organizing. Today, we're, we're discussing a very topical issue, extended work in life and the increase in state pension age. Uh, it's extremely topical given that the Pensions Commission is currently considering this very issue. I'm going to introduce today's speakers. My name is Anya Nilema and I'm based at the Irish Centre for Social Gerontology and I'm the principal investigator on, for the DAISY project. That's a cross-national EU funded project. And I'm also former chair of Cost Action IS1409 on gender and extended work and life policy. So that's an international research group. Maggie O'Neill is a postdoctoral researcher who's also working on the DAISY project. And she and I will present the project findings for the first 30 minutes of today's uh, event. Maureen Maloney from the Discipline of Management has conducted extensive research on pensions in Ireland and is a member of the Irish Pensions Policy Research Group. Nata Duvery is director of the Global Women's Studies Centre and she is involved in the DAISY project as an advisor on policy. Uh, Nata was also a working group leader in the cost action on extended working life policy. Maureen and Nata will have a dialogue about gender and extended working life policy at a national level from uh, 2.35 to 2.50, and there'll be time for questions after that. So you can put questions in the question and answer at any time, and they'll be asked at the end uh, of the, of the uh, policy dialogue. But I'm just going to share, share my screen. So there you have. Um, okay, so um, the title of today's presentation is Health Workers and Extended Working Life Policy in Ireland, Evidence from the DAISY Project. So I'll begin, as I said, by presenting the project background, the policy context, and the findings on unpaid care work. And Maggie will present the health-related and COVID-19 related findings, and I'll return at the end to discuss the policy implications. At this point, I'd like to thank the participants in the study who generously gave their time and shared their experiences with us. So DAISY, what is DAISY then? It's Dynamics of Accumulated Inequalities for Seniors in Employment. That's the title of it. So it's a cross-national NORFIS funded project and it runs from 2018 to 2021. It's a mixed method study conducted in five countries, the Czech Republic, Ireland, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. And it involves interviews with workers in different occupations, so health, finance, and transport sectors. But today's presentation focuses on unpaid care, health, and extended working life policy for workers in the healthcare sector. So in the project, we adopt a gender political economy of aging approach to analysis. This emphasizes the impact of the economy legislation and gendered social norms regarding care. So Ireland is a liber hybrid liberal and familial welfare state. So in the analysis, we consider extended working life policies, including pension and employment policies 
and also uh, consider economic conditions, including, for example, the impact of the global financial crisis. So why is it important to focus on gender? Because gender policies and, and social norms affect women's labor force participation and their pension provision. So there's horizontal and vertical segregation of women in low paid work in Ireland and in, in most other countries. There are gaps from pension building for caregiving um, and there's a high female share of part-time work and social norms where women are regarded as the primary carers. So to look, I want to look now at extended working life policy in Ireland and uh, the impacts for nurses. So one of a range of extended working life policies and the one that we asked participants specifically about is the increase in state pension age. This increased from, was increased from 65 to 66 in 2014, and is, it's proposed to increase it to 67 in 2021 and 68 in 2028. However, those increases are currently suspended and they're be, being considered now by the Pensions Commission. So we might expect, because there were a lot of protests about them recently, we might expect no direct impact on longer serving nurses with full occupational pensions. However, we would expect it to directly affect those on mixed occupational and state pensions. Uh, another change in extended working life policy is the requirement to have more um, pension contributions uh, and that it links pension amounts more closely to participation in paid employment. Uh, the retirement age at 65 and pension age at 66 leaves a gap between finishing work and receiving the pension. So uh, private sector workers would be expected, would be affected by that. Uh, this offers, uh, the, there has been a new uh, policy introduced. Public sector workers, including nurses, can now work to age 70. So this, is, this does offer an option to work longer to those who are healthy enough to do so. Uh, I'm going to mention a few of the COVID-19 policy measures. Uh, during the first lockdown, cocooning was introduced for workers aged over 70, and that affected those who worked in agencies, private agencies at that time. They had to stay out of work. Later on, policies that were important were redeployment, for example, to nursing homes or to testing or to vaccine centres. And conditions of employment, of course, changed for many nurses. Uh, including wearing PPE, and there were a lot of changes of those policies over time. So in Ireland, there were historically few family-friendly policies, uh, and uh, there was the marriage bar and some discriminatory policies that affected uh, some of the nurses, the older nurses in the study, uh, their participation in the labour market. There was a homemaker scheme was introduced in 1994, which is a good policy because it gives uh, people pension credits for caring for childcare. And, uh, but that is not retrospective prior to 1994. So people who had children uh, prior to that couldn't avail of that policy. Uh, currently, there's a range of paid and unpaid maternity, paternity and parental leave. Um, but there's still poor provision of public childcare and private care is still very expensive. Uh, so women tend to have lower amounts of private and occupational pensions than men. Looking specifically then at the HSE, most of the uh, workers 
in, who participated in the study were uh, employed by the HSE. So some of the policies that uh, emerged as important were uh, lack of hoists and lifts and lack of manual handling, handling training uh, in the past. Current policies, there is an injury payment policy because injuries can be prevalent among nurses. There's a pilot pre-retirement scheme, which is, seems to be a very good scheme for frontline staff only. Um, people can work for half time for five years and have full pensions for that period. There are also job sharing and career breaks available in, in theory, but in practice, they're not always that easy to, uh, to avail of. Um, after the global financial crisis, uh, several older workers in the health service, uh, indeed in the public service, were encouraged, strongly encouraged to retire. So interviews were conducted with 40 healthcare workers in Ireland. So they were all nurses, uh, 24 women and 16 men in Ireland, most were age 50 plus. There were two, just two who were under 50. Most were employed by the HSE and recruitment was through snowball sampling. So now I turn to the project findings. And first I'm going to look at unpaid care, uh, then the impacts of health, and then people's views on extended working life. So looking at the, the research participants, there were uh, a variety of people working in a variety of roles, from, ranging from management to uh, frontline work, and ranging from staff nurses to assistant directors of nursing. Uh, so many people had poor health, work-related chronic conditions, including injuries to backs and hips, and stress was another uh, very prevalent condition. Most people had defined benefit occupational pensions, but some had defined contribution plus the state pension, and some had small um, pensions from other jurisdictions as well. So just a word about the life course trajectories. Uh, the, the, for, for women, um, nursing was considered an appropriate career. Uh, for men, not always. Sometimes it was, it, it was uh, considered not suitable for men by their parents or, or by their friends. Um, on, on women also, there was a big difference between um, women and men in terms of career interrupt interruptions. There were career breaks and job sharing for childcare for over a third of uh, the women and no career interruptions for that purpose for men. So this tended to lead to lower pensions um, for the women. So the life course, uh, there were life course influence of family at school leaving. Uh, so the women were encouraged, most of them were encouraged to do nursing. And so this man, for example, was discouraged. He said, my father said, what are you on about? That's a sissy's job. So that was that kind of time. So, but he started at a, working at a stereotypically male job, welding, and that delayed the start of his career. Uh, so men were, had a very limited, uh, some men had a limited involvement in childcare. 40% uh, said that their wives or partners had done the bulk of childcare um, when they were, uh, when their children were young. Uh, so that man says, uh, honestly, I'd have to say three hours of childcare would drive me up the wall. So anything above that, I'd be kicking myself, which sounds awful. 
So one third of the wives of men nurses uh, who participated worked full time unpaid in the home and only uh, around 10 percent of the uh, of husbands of, of uh, female nurses. So, um, so several did all or most of the child care themselves of the women um, with along with some paid care. Six shared childcare with, with their husbands and had some had paid care if they were both in paid work. Uh, only around 10 or 11% of nurses with children had husbands doing all or most of the childcare. So this woman, her husband did, uh, he, he actually stayed at home for 12 years and looked after the children. But that was very much um, not the norm. And uh, job sharing, there was a real difference here. Half of the women versus none of the men with children job shared to facilitate childminding. The reasons they gave for that was that they either they couldn't find childcare or they wanted to care themselves uh, and there were strong social norms at the time um, or their husbands worked away or, or for long hours. So some people had both career breaks and uh, also job shared. So this led for them to lower pensions and it had implications for women in a breadwinner role. Um, the lower they, they needed to work longer as uh, coming up to uh, traditional state pension age. For some, this was mitigated by their partners having a good pension. Um, some of the men moved to Ireland with their wives and they had uh, sometimes lower pensions for that reason. So now I'm going to hand over to uh, Maggie. So she's going to um, present on the health findings of this study. Thank you, Anya. Many of the nurses are healthy, particularly if they have not worked in physically demanding roles. The most common conditions were stress and musculoskeletal conditions with injured backs, collarbones and hips. Some had heart problems and or high blood pressure. Others had respiratory problems or cancer and one reported having health problems associated with the menopause. Some nurses have back problems which they attribute to um, lack of training or equipment, um, lack of training and equipment in the early part of their careers, as described here by Kathleen, because hoists and all that manual handling, all that wasn't there, so you sort of bent over and lifted them up from the floor and that, whereas now you have hoists. So yeah, I mean, people that worked in my area who really destroyed themselves really physically. Kathleen is now a nurse in a private company. This further quote from Kathleen indicates how common such injuries were among nurses of her age group. I have a bad back, a bad back due to pulling and dragging and hauling. Show me a nurse who doesn't have a bad back. She moved to a less physical role and now works in the private sector. Una describes the damage done to her back from poor practices during midwifery training. It was work-related, but you see, when I was doing my midwifery, women had their legs up on their pelvises and were pushing against us, pushing out their babies. She has since moved to a managerial role. Another area of work where nurses sometimes sustained occupational injuries was psychiatric nursing, 
and nursing people with intellectual disabilities. For example, Patrick suggested that he experienced relatively minor injuries regularly. Well, I suppose what's an injury? I often get kicked, hair pulled, slapped. Um, while AGN sustained a serious back injury over 20 years earlier. But in 1995, I shattered a disc in my back. I worked with challenging behavior and there was no hoists, right? So I worked with a shattered disc until 1996. She still suffers from chronic back pain as a result. Another common complaint was stress and this was in intensive care units, A&D, and some general wards where there were um, staff shortages and patients on trolleys due to lack of funding. Complete stress, I was burnt out. I suppose I'd been a clinical nurse for how many years is that? From 2000 to 2018. And I was in intensive care for a long time. I had to get out for my health as well, mental and physical. So she moved to a training policy role. Catherine highlights the high level of stress she experienced working in a clinical role. I don't want to go back to the wards. I don't want to do that backbreaking work anymore. The pressure and always on your game. She feels that she would not be able to continue in this role at her current age. And she has since moved to a middle management role. Some nurses had multiple health conditions, including Delia, who had knee problems and an ulcer um, she attributed to stress. I would have had some problems with my knees, but I also had a stomach ulcer um, and it was a bit of a wake up call for me. Similarly, so she moved into a training role and similarly, Brandon states, at about the five year point, the A&E crisis was at its peak and that was really, really stressful and I think definitely impacted on my health, physical and mental health. He is now in a training role and says he wouldn't have survived in his previous role. Some said that aging impacted on their health and ability to work. The setting and role was important. For example, one man said he wouldn't work in acute psychiatric admissions as he grew older. I just think it's too dangerous and I'll be too old for it being perfectly honest, he said. He now works in um, a community setting. Another woman said that shift work becomes more difficult when older. I had nothing after the long days or even the short days. Now I don't think you should be in the wards. There should be a pathway for older people. Definitely it's too physical a job as a staff nurse. The nurses adopted various strategies to deal with these health issues. For example, some switched to part-time work, two retired early, others moved to training or management. Some availed of a pre-retirement scheme but found it difficult to access. I said to them, if you don't give me this, I'm resigning because I can't keep this going. My health is going to start to suffer. Most of the women nurses had a negative attitude to raising state pension age due to the physical demands of the job. I do, I think even 65 is very difficult for nurses. I feel strongly as a profession Nursing, I feel that we've been taken a little bit for granted as a group. And I feel like I say, look at the Gardaí and their retirement age. Many nurses have a retirement norm of 60. Most people in their head have the age of 60 and nursing is retirement. Nursing is a very physically demanding profession. That's Francis. 
Many of the men also had negative attitudes to extended working life due to the physical demands of the job and to the difficulties of shift work. Um, to be honest with you, to do that well, if it was in this type of work, to work to 67, I think you'd be knackered. I really don't think you'd manage it. Or there's no, no way you could be 70 or 65 working full time in here. You can't do in shift work on it. No way, not at 65, daft. Even shift work at 60, I'm looking at that thinking, Jesus, what am I going to do? I'll just get sick. And he works in an emergency department. Some have mixed perspectives on extending working life. They agreed that it may be necessary for the government to sustain pensions, but question whether nurses would be physically able to do so. So I understand why the government needs to make these decisions. I suppose then there's a cohort who are maybe a lot younger and know they're going to be working a lot longer in life. And yeah, there would be a lot of discussion about whether they would be physically able to. Several of the nurses expressed the view that working after age 65 should be a choice. You shouldn't have to, but the choice should be there. But then equally, the choice should therefore be there then to be able to reduce your hours or job share. Or it should be a choice if you're exhausted at 57, 58. I mean, emotionally, physically, psychologically, you're going to be crucified at 68 if you feel this way at 58. We conducted brief follow-up interviews with the women nurses about their experiences of COVID-19. All feared contracting COVID-19 and mainly they were worried about their families. Many referred to stress, burnout or COVID fatigue and several wanted to retire early because of fear. Their responses are complex. Some want to retire, but also feel that they should stay. Yeah, yeah, I feel I've given it the best. I'm hoping, you know, I kind of was, you know, sort of thinking, God, maybe that's cowardly. And then I thought, well, it's not really a cowardly act leaving because I've given it 12 months. I've come in even though I was afraid. The nurses were asked what policies would help them to deal with the impacts of COVID-19. They identified the following measures, childcare, addressing the needs of carers, personal development, such as um, discussion of career goals, increased staffing, improved staff facilities, such as changing rooms, restrooms, additional paid leave, a change of the culture of top-down policymaking. And so I'll hand you back over to Anya now for the conclusions and more general policy recommendations. Thanks, Maggie. <clears throat> okay, so just to summarize the health findings for the older, older nurses. Um, so it affects both men and women. It seems there isn't a huge difference there. It really depends more on the area of work so psychiatric, general, midwifery, intensive care um, are areas where people did seem to um, develop uh, work-related injuries. Um, there's also an issue of whether um, people are engaged in frontline work. So that definitely, uh, and clinical work seems to be 
more uh, stressful and often you know more physically demanding so the implications of this are that it's very difficult for these workers to continue working into older age uh, so higher state pension aid for them will certainly be challenging for people who are um, on the their, their um, say younger nurses or more recently recruited nurses who are on the uh, not on the old occupational pension scheme uh, so they're partly dependent on the state pension so and for many nurses it seems clear that even reaching occupational pension age even the old one of 65 would be difficult so what are the implications of this uh, policy for policy so in terms of national policy um, and you know, moving beyond nurses, really those in any kind of physically demanding work should be able to, it seems clear, be able to retire earlier on a full state pension. Um, and th this is the case in some other countries. Um, affordable childcare uh, could, uh, would be um, very beneficial in terms of pensions for people. Uh, longer paid paternity leave would mean, mean that the work of um, looking after children would be shared more between men and women. Um, more supports for nurses during COVID-19. Um, certainly they were calling for those kinds of supports. And looking then at employer policies, and I suppose we're looking mainly at the HSE here. Um, policies to enhance work flexibility seems need to be made fully available so they were you know this is what a lot of people really felt would help them to continue working to 65 if they or, or 66 if necessary um, and so people if they don't have full pensions they really do need to work longer so that kind of work flexibility would enable that safety protocols obviously need to be observed um, and there is some evidence that they're not always observed. Um, flexible policies then for all, for all staff. So um, the pre-retirement scheme at the moment, the, the pilot scheme is for um, staff who, who are in clinical roles. And this, a lot of people in other roles would have liked to avail of it. And they may well have developed chronic conditions themselves. Uh, because of their worked earlier in uh, clinical roles. So that seems like a, a very useful policy to have to extend that out to other, uh, other workers as well. Okay, so thank you very much. So um, if you have any questions, you can put them into the Q&A and uh, Maureen will be uh, fielding those later. So now I'm going to hand you over to um, Nasha and uh, Maury, who are going to have a, a dialogue. Okay. Thanks, Sonia. Um, Nada, I thought that maybe we could start by discussing our research, um, particularly where it crosses over with the findings from the DAISY project um, discussed by Anya and Maggie. So why don't you start off, Nada? Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Anya and Maggie. This uh, presentation was really uh, very powerful and really highlights some essential 
issues that women workers, whether they be in nursing or in other sectors, do face um, all over Ireland. And <clears throat> it really resonates with the first piece of research that Anya and I did with Aoife Callan uh, in 2012 on women's access, older women's access to pensions, uh, their vulnerabilities and strategies. So that research actually very well resonates what Anya and Maggie have highlighted. We didn't go into depth of looking at a particular sector of workers, but we looked at women more broadly. And what we found is you know, what is well known that uh, gender norms shape the uh, women's accessibility to pensions. Um, but it's really through three routes. First, that women are often concentrated in part-time work. And that has, and they have interrupted working history. So these two really uh, ensure that they're kind of in a ghetto in the employment uh, labor market. They're ghettoized in one way. And that ghettoization leads to them being also having low wages. And the low wages then leads to their inability to make sufficient contributions. So what we found is women did not have uh, adequate number of contributions because of this part-time and interrupted working history. And that even if they made contributions, it was especially in occupational pensions, they couldn't make sufficient contributions, uh, adequate contributions to ensure that they get a more uh, robust pension income at the end of their uh, working life. So that is something that I think resonates very much with what uh, Ma Maggie and Anya have found and reported today. So what about you, Maureen? What about you? You did research on pensions, I think, and pension systems and so what did you see that resonated with your own research? Yeah, so my focus wasn't as much um, gender-based as was, um, was yours or Maggie's or Anya's. Um, my research is concerned with pension communication and I look at it from a bounded rationality perspective. In my research, I found that women and men um, who are in stable employment and are working for the same organization, they tend to make um, similar decisions. Um, but if we look at you know, recent statistics from the CSO, about half of the people in employment are saving into occupational pensions. And that coverage rate is um, broadly the same, both for men and women. However, if we look at the percentage of women participating in the labor force, um, it is considerably lower than for men. And uh, women are more likely to be working part-time and have interrupted work histories, as you said. So this has implications for the amount that they receive um, from both the state pension and from an occupational pension. I also teach in the area of human uh, resource management um, and the way people are paid is an important part of the employment relationship. So for years, my students and I have been observing um, the gender pay gap. Uh, the most remarkable feature is its persistence um, due to deeply embedded inequities in the labor market um, and to social norms. So the gender pay gap means that women who are in the labor force and contributing to pensions will, will receive less on average at retirement um, than their male counterparts. 
So therefore my conclusions, um, though I'm coming at it from a different perspective, are broadly the same as yours. Um, the income inequities that women face during their working lives um, also reduce their income at retirement. So your research though really sheds light on how that impacts on women's lived experiences. So turning back to you, Nada, in your research with um, Anya, I noticed that we hold a similar view on the importance of the universal um, basic pension. Um, why is that important in the Irish context? So just as Anya has shown already in, in terms of uh, their recent research on nurses, what we found in the earlier report is that actually women had uh, dissatisfaction with the amount, the adequacy of the pension that they would be receiving. So whether it was uh, contributing lifelong to the state pension, but on a smaller level so that their contributions did not fit into the full, could not en enable them to realize the full contributory pension, or whether it was they did make small contributions to their occupational pension, that there was inadequacy. Inadequacy was one of the issues that came out very strongly. And because the pensions were inadequate, then many of the women, uh, as some of the nurses have said, that they had to continue working. Whether they were able to or not able to, they had to very different. So the pension system actually is, is set up in such a way that actually women have had to work longer. So this whole increasing the retirement age is actually nothing new. This has been the lived reality for quite a few older women. And that they um, had to either continue working or that they have to cut back their expenditures. So what is the point of a pension system that delivers a payment which is inadequate for a decent life? That is why we feel very strongly that a universal uh, basic income, a uh, basic pension is important. And that is not 34%. We, we said it should be 40% of the average wage. And that at least would ensure that many of the older workers, men or women, would have some minimal level of decent life. What about you, Marie? You also have said universal basic pension. Yeah, would be my, would be my preferred choice for sure. Um, so my interest in the Irish state pension started when I moved to Ireland. Um, so for 20 years, I lived with my cousin who received the non-contributory pension, uh, which you, as you all know, um, is only slightly less than the contributory state pension. So Ellie was a member of that generation um, whose spending was based on what they needed rather than what they wanted. Therefore, between the non-contributory pension and the household allowance, she easily lived within her means. When we consider the pension system um, in any country, we often talk about the three pillars. So that would be the state pension, occupational pensions, and personal pensions. But when changes to the pension system are considered, um, oftentimes the state pension is considered as completely separate um, from the second and the third pillars. And I think that this is a mistake. 
because there are costs and benefits associated with each pillar and we should look at it in the round. When I started studying pensions, I found that my experience with ELI wasn't unique. Um, the ESRI research um, suggests that um, the flat rate pension in its current state keeps most older people um, out of poverty. So if the flat rate pension um, is the strength of the Irish system, um, I think that the occupational pension system is a weakness. Our research, um, research by a recently, our recently deceased colleague, um, Jerry Hughes, um, indicates that a tax relief accrues to people earning high income. Um, the most recent research conducted with Michal Collins uh, was published in 2017, and they found that three quarters of the tax expenditure um, relief was concentrated on contributors who were in the top um, 20% of the income uh, of the income distribution, while the bottom half received less than 7%. Um, this is because of the two-tier tax, uh, tax relief system. And though unevenly distributed, the cost of, of the income tax foregone is large. So Collins and Hughes calculated that this was about 5% of the total tax revenue in 2013. They concluded this research by stating, an objective of policy should be to establish a better balance in the distribution of public resources to focus them on low and middle-income earners who need them most and significantly reduce tax reliefs for the highest earners who need them least. And the only way that this can be done is by look, looking at the system as a whole rather than the sum of parts and by calculating the cost and benefits um, to each pillar. So to just conclude on this, um, you know, based on the evidence, um, I think that Ireland should improve in the area of strength by prov um, providing the universal uh, flat rate pension to all Irish residents. Um, this can eliminate poverty and old age. Um, improving pension adequacy through automatic enrollment into occupational pension plans requires considerations that would be a topic for another forum. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that to say that um, why the basic uh, pension, universal basic pension is uh, absolutely necessary is that right now when you have the state pension and you've contributed to an occupational pension, the system, the occupational pension deducts what you're supposed to get from the state pension. So, which is very strange because they're actually two separate schemes and you've contributed to both. The second is that uh, the state pension system uh, hasn't yet changed some of its really early rules. One of which is that your entry into the labor force has to be minimum of 10 years before you will finish at so an age of 65. So women who are returning to the labor force often will return to the labor force later in life. And so they'll be returning into the labor force and have very short duration of contribution before retirement age. And they will not be uh, able to access adequate pension at all in terms of uh, given that they have only limited contributions. So that's something that should be actually looked at. It's never been raised as a issue. 
and also this tie up between state and occupational pension. I think I think the other issue too is that you know it's 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 not just women that are discriminated against. It's really everyone who faces um, you know inequities in the labor market. Um, all of those people end up um, facing these same kinds of issues. Now, unfortunately, women would be the largest group because they would cross over into many of the other kinds of discriminated uh, groups. So, you know, I, I think, you know, really what it comes down to my mind is like that basic idea of fairness. You know, is it fair um, for us uh, to treat people dissimilarly, um, especially when it comes to the points in their lives where they are the least likely to be able to make changes uh, to be able to provision for themselves in their old age. So yeah, in my mind, um, you know, the universal uh, flat rate uh, state pension is, is definitely uh, the, the best way um, to use our resources in a way that is fair for everyone. Okay, so just bringing us back to the DAISY research, um, the research highlights uh, among, the DAISY research um, among nurses highlights some specific aspects that are not, not available for women workers in other sectors. In the context of government's continuous push to revise retirement age upwards, what are some of the key recommendations to ensure women's access um, to pensions and pension planning? So <clears throat> last action, we did do a review of pensions uh, systems across Europe and try to distill some of the best practice. Um, and from that best practice have developed a set of recommendations for improving uh, women's access to pensions and pension planning. So there are really three fundamental recommendations that we made, which I think align with what uh, Anya and Maggie have also highlighted today. First was that the policies to increase pension age they have to be aligned with employment and wage policies. You can't just increase wage and, and not do anything around employment and wage policies because otherwise women will not be able to make adequate contributions, which is a fundamental thing. The second thing is that, and I think this is an area that you have worked on uh, Maureen, is that there needs to be pension literacy there has to be uh, schemes and programs to enhance women's literacy of pensions and pension system, because it's a very complicated system. There is an expectation women have that they will be fine at the age of 65 or 67 or 70, but they, at the, <laughs> the day they retire, they suddenly find, no, it's not there. So they need to have uh, pension literacy so that they can engage in pension planning. And there are some very innovative schemes that have been done in Eastern Europe to really uh, facilitate pension literacy. The third is that, um, and you've already said this point, we also recommend that to ensure women's future pensions, you have to uh, address gender pay gap. There's really no way out of out of the black box. It has to be through gender pay gap being uh, reduced. So that is something, and as well as to have accessible and affordable 
childcare, but I'll touch that a little bit later again, but this is absolutely essential. And fundamentally, uh, we, along with everyone else who works in these area have said, and as you have said, is there has to be a recognition of the right to retire, the right to retire before a mandatory age. And so whatever is the systems that need to be put in place, but that's a fundamental right. So increasing age has to be accompanied by recognition of the right to retire. What about you, Maureen? Well, actually, I'm just going to say a couple of things about the way in which the, um, the pension policy is, is, is moving in this area. Um, one of the things that um, the Pension Commission, as Anya mentioned, um, is looking at is the issue of uh, the way in which the, um, the pension um, age should increase. So, you know, the thinking behind this is that, you know, as our um, you know, if we look at the demographic changes in society, as um, ages are increasing, um, so too should um, the, the, the age in which people receive pensions um, to incentivize people to stay within the workforce uh, for longer. So this has had, you know, kind of a, a fairly, uh, probably at least this has been part of um, the public debate since the financial crisis. So kind of without any kind of consultation at that time, um, the government announced that they were going to increase the pension age. So in 2014, it increased from 65 to uh, 66. Um, then in 2021, it was supposed to increase uh, to 67. And then in 2028, increased to, um, to, to the age of 68. Now, people were so much taken by surprise by this at the time that many of the people that were retiring um, in 2014 didn't realize that the change had been made because their contract of employment ended at 65, whereas their entitlement to a pension um, did not begin until the age of 66. So uh, anyway, there has been a lot of, you know, kind of uh, toing and froing about this, but kind of the next area uh, time that this has been um, brought up again was uh, in the most recent change of government. So um, the, uh, as part of the program of government, the Fina Fall, um, the Fina Fall Party particularly, uh, said that they wanted to revisit uh, what is the, the, uh, the ages of retirement. So there was a, um, a you know, there was a change um, in terms of when people were to retire, they decided that um, it would stop at 66, where it currently is, and um, that any changes would be made as part of uh, a, a, the work of what they called uh, a commission for pensions. So just to say what's happening with the Commission on Pensions, they have started their work. Um, they expect it, uh, they have um, already sent out a consultation process, um, begun a consultation process where they went out and asked people uh, about the employment age along with other things like you were talking about the total contributions approach um, to, the, to the social pension, to the state pension, and also about um, you know, the way in which this should be financed so that consultation process is complete and we're expecting a report from uh, the Commission on Pensions in 2021. And then the government is supposed to make decisions based on that within six months. So, uh, you know, possibly the dates will be held. Um, you know, there have been many consultation processes in the past. 
uh, where no actions have occurred on um, after they, res they uh, were completed. So we'll just have to see whether or not this is different. So I'm just gonna ask you then finally, uh, Nada, um, there's a fairly broad consensus um, that gender norms around care work um, are a significant barrier to women realizing the benefits of their work participation. Uh, this has been particularly accentuated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, as we recover from the pandemic, how do we address the care board burden of women over the long run? I think first, uh, very, I just make very quick points. First and foremost is that we must shift our attitude towards care work. The care work is not privatized. It's not within private uh, households. We need to consider ways in which it can be socialized, to what extent it can be socialized, and government must invest in social infrastructure, not just physical infrastructure, but social in infrastructure. And third, I think we have to look at labor laws to ensure that employers are required to provide some sort of care facilities, uh, creches, etc., because employers benefit from this unpaid care work. And so they should actually contribute to making sure care facilities and socialized care facilities are available to all women. I think I'm going to um, end that this section now so that we have enough time to get through. I see that there are a few questions um, in the um, raised by uh, people, the uh, people that are um, you know, attending the webinar. So um, I think that I'll get started in asking those. So uh, the first one is, um, I'd be interested in the snowball approach to the selection of respondents. Were any measures taken to ensure that the people interviewed represented the general population in some way? Okay, I'll, I'll answer that. Um, uh, no, we weren't trying to, um, to represent the general population. We were, uh, it was a, an occupational case study approach and we, because we wanted to compare across countries. So the, the best way to do that was to take people from different occupations. So, uh, uh, and then within the nurses, though, within, uh, say, we uh, interviewed nurses, so we did try to get, um, say, a gender representation there. So there were 16 men and 24 women. Now, that's an overrepresentation of men. So we did have, you know, insofar as we could, but we really weren't trying to represent the general population. We were looking at the application. Okay. I have another question here. Could I get the reference again um, to gendered political economy of, of aging approach, uh, to the gendered political economy of aging approach? Yep, I can, uh, I'll put up some, uh, I'll make those available references, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it seems that, mo that some people moved out of physically demanding jobs into managerial or training roles, for instance, um, is, is another policy option to develop pathways for people to change occupations? Yes, definitely. That's, uh, that is going to be one of the recommendations. Um, and it's something that they've raised themselves because some of those people were fortunate in that they were able to 
um, you know, to take on a training role or something like that, if they had, uh, they might have done a master's or something like that, but other people weren't able to do that. So, um, yeah, there was, but it, it was really remarkable that so many people had moved. In fact, we, we included that in all the slides. This person moved to a less onerous role, but not, I think it should actually be a policy that people can move to, to those kinds of roles. I did some research. This was um, uh, just very shortly after the pension age increased, and um, I was talking to people about their uh, what their uh, what they wanted to do, um, you know, during their years that would be, um, you know, post retirement, you know. So after that time, it was 66, and it was really interesting. Um, a lot of people said that they they didn't. They didn't know exactly what they wanted to do, but they wanted to do something else. So, you know, I think that there is, you know, I think for, for many people, you know, the, the, the idea is not necessarily that they want to stop working. Um, for some people, they simply want to be able to either have something less stressful, something, you know, different, um, you know, something that is I'm going to engage them, you know, just have those kinds of options that are outside of their, their main employment. So there's a question here. Anyone raise shift hours, which I think are far too long and must help, must, um, help to develop health problems? Yes, they did. Um, and I th we haven't included that on some of the slides, but uh, definitely shift work was an issue. Um, there was, I think there was only one person who uh, said they loved doing night shifts, but everybody else found it, a lot, most people found it difficult. And some people, as they aged, they found it more difficult. So quite a few people said, I could recover now, you know, very quickly from a night shift. And some people had worked maybe two jobs when they were younger. And they were saying, we just spend all our time recovering from one shift to the next, and we just about can manage to do that. So their lives were very much work and sleep, you know, and, and back to work again. So yeah, it was, shift work was an issue. And not only in Ireland, but also in uh, some of the other countries in the UK in particular, uh, shift work was a big issue. Because we're, we're just beginning to do those international comparisons now. Right. So, um, this is a question probably for Nat or myself. Um, how would a 40% universal pension be funded in the context of an aging population, given that a relatively smaller cohort of working age population would have to pay for it based on the current pay as you go model? Nat, do you wanna take a first stab at that? So I think uh, that requires a change in the system. It's not about pay you go system but that it must be uh, financed out of general tax revenue. So <clears throat> it's applied across to the population. That's one method. SIP2 has made a recommendation that the employer's PSRI needs to be slowly increased because uh, their argument is that in Ireland's uh, employer's contribution is actually one of the lowest in comparison to other European countries. So there's some broad general mechanisms that can be 
uh, used to fund the, this pension system. In New Zealand, it's, uh, it's a general tax. It's out of general tax revenues. Yeah, and I think, I think this again kind of goes back to what I was saying is taking a look at the whole pension system. So um, I think many people look at the two-tier tax system for tax relief as being you know, really unfair. And if you take a look at most other tax relief, um, you know, given on health insurance and um, other, in, in other areas, um, it's at the standard rate. So I think one of the things that should be considered is, um, you know, if you're going to um, increase the, um, you may, uh, if you want to increase the amount paid to people, or if you want to make this a universal um, social pension, um, that you should reduce uh, the tax relief um, that is mainly being uh, ben benefits people that are on higher levels of income. So, yeah, I think we have to look at the whole, the whole system to try to come up with ideas of the way that we come up with a system that is, that is, that is the fairest and also reaches, um, you know, kind of what are uh, societally agreed objectives. So a question do you feel that so many people moving into administrative positions is responsible in part, at least for the top heavy HSC approach to health um, uh, with far too many people uh, in hands-on nursing positions? Well, I, I, I don't know if that's the case um, because I, I, well, some of the people that we, uh, the participants, they were um, they were in training roles, so they weren't necessarily in administrative roles, or they were in team leader roles. So they were kind of a mix of management and clinical. But uh, I imagine those decisions about whether you know how many people are in administrative roles is a is a different issue. The administration of the health service would be different, I think, if that's what you're. Questions. So I think that that brings us to the end of our questions. Um, Anya, is there anything else that you'd like to say before we? Um, well, just I suppose the I, I think what's striking really is um, the just the the real difficulties. I suppose just to, to look at. Um, I think it's very easy to think, okay, so there's a, there's a, people are living longer, so they should be working longer, but we really need to look at it in a much more nuanced way, because people's health, you know, is, it does differ between occupations, so that's, that's the main message I'd like to have here, and, and nurses, I suppose, at least they, the, um, the longer serving nurses would have uh, better occupational pensions, but uh, there are people without any occupational pension, so they're really in a very difficult position um, when their health is challenged, they have health challenges. So, yeah, so that, that's the main message. Okay, so thanks to everybody for listening. And thanks to Maureen and Nata and Maggie for participating. Thank you. Yes, and thanks to Courtney for organising. <laughs> <laughs>